0: we all come. Oh boy,
1: you? Hey Ella, it's Andy here. I just wanted to tell you.
2: From the New South Wales Gender Centre. There's
1: another archive in Melbourne that no one's looked
2: at. And the Trans Day of Remembrance. Any names? This is Counting the Dead. Just nothing, just a story. I'm Eloise Brook. It's a windy, rain-swept morning in Melbourne. I fly down from Sydney early. It's not quite six weeks since Melody Bruno's brutal death in Wagga. So far, she's the only name I've been able to add to the list of names to take to this year's Trans Day of Remembrance, and the clock is ticking. I'm going to pick up the threads of Melody's story a little later. I'm going to end this episode by coming back to Melody. And I'm going to tell you something I think that is even more shocking. Something that shines a light on the awful state of trans and gender diverse justice in Australia. But for now, I need to find out other missing dead. I want to warn listeners that this podcast will talk about the dead we we'll talk about homicide and violence done to members of the trans and gender diverse community subjects that some listeners might find triggering so please take care that if any of the material you hear on this podcast is upsetting or triggering that you can call lifeline on 13 11 14 or the gender center on 9519 7599 during office hours i'm on a tram I'm heading out of the Melbourne CBD, north along Swanson Street. I'm still thinking about what Dr. Andy Caladelfos said in our last episode about trans and gender diverse violence and murders in Australia. The question at the core of Counting the Dead is how can Australia's trans and gender diverse community? experience such high levels of discrimination, violence, homelessness, unemployment and mental health challenges. That is, tick all the boxes for being in crisis and not have correspondingly high levels of homicide. The 20th anniversary of the Trans Day of Remembrance is in three weeks and in the last 20 years there have only been two homicides. That is, until just under six weeks ago, when Melody Bruno was killed. Andy confirmed what I suspected. It doesn't add up. And it turns out that a lack of names after more than six months searching isn't just because I'm a lousy investigator. Though, of course, the jury is still out on that one. To paraphrase Andy, if we don't have the baseline numbers... How can we begin to make sense of this problem if we don't have an idea of our population, if we don't know the kinds of deaths that trans and gender diverse people experience, and if the record keeping just doesn't exist, how do we know? How will we ever know? Australia is not a place of dramatic trans and gender diverse deaths. It's not like the US or Brazil, where a culture of violence means that being killed for being trans and gender diverse means being splashed all over the headlines, means a violent, gruesome death. In Australia, it most certainly does mean a violent, gruesome death, but it also means slipping between the cracks. It means silence, invisibility, the ghost world. Let me make this clear. This is not about a comparison, but rather a warning. The dead we find, won't be visible and dramatic. They'll be hidden. The The reason I'm in Melbourne is to follow a lead. Pretty much the last best lead that I've got in a long list of dead ends. Andy Kaladelfos dropped the bombshell about an archive at Melbourne Uni that he had come across when he was doing his PhD. One that no one, it seems, has had a really good look at since it was added to the Melbourne Uni East Scholarship Centre a few years ago. And of course, I'm running late. I'm wandering through the University of Melbourne, trying to work out where I have to go. Here's the thing about the University of Melbourne. It's a crazy, eclectic mix of buildings. Gorgeous though. There's the original sandstone buildings at the centre, but after that, It's like someone has scrabbled together a chess set where almost no two pieces are the same or from the same time period. But I can't shake the feeling of not just being physically lost. I'm drifting, unanchored, with no sense of progress. Every time I think I'm progressing across campus, no. I'm standing still, or worse, I've gone backwards. Lost, wet, cold distracted too. This morning, I'm hearing rumours through my network that the next national survey held by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, the one all households do in Australia and that is scheduled for 2021, is not going to include any questions on gender identity or sexual orientation. Nothing. If true, the small gains of the last few years are gone. I can't tell you how much blood, sweat and tears went into this behind the scenes for years. Advocates for the wider LGBTI community worked tirelessly to get the 2016 National Census to do its job. Actually record information about a rare or hard to see community or communities so that we might, might, start to get a sense of numbers that reflect the reality or what we're living through. Its job? To snapshot poorly understood sections of the Australian community. So, when a community, like say the trans and gender diverse community, puts up its hand and says, please look at us, we exist. It isn't because we feel like people aren't talking about us enough. It's because we're desperate. Desperate to get a more accurate account of our numbers. If, as Andy says, we don't have baseline numbers, then how can we begin to make sense of this epidemic? Epidemic of what? Well, take your pick. Now? Now we're facing the prospect that in 2021, at the next census, trans and gender diverse people, families and children will be... I'm trying to find a better word, but no. Here goes. Ghosts. I keep coming back to this, I know. But we have a problem. We've been turning slowly, inexorably, into the ghosts of our own future. What era am I walking between? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Because we're out of time no matter where we wander. I'm totally lost now. Finally, I'll give up and call someone to tell me where I am. Hi. Oh my gosh. No, she's bad. Um I think we've booked this room Oh, lovely. Here, uh, but I'll just show you where the toilets are. Yeah, please. Are can... and, and I've come straight from the, the airport. Oh. And, oh, lovely. Okay, better. This is the Melbourne University's e-scholarship research centre. It's warm and dry, thank goodness. There's a room that I've booked. And in the room are four, how do I describe them? Document cases. When I first called to see if the archive on trans and gender diverse even existed I was told that my timing was excellent. These four cases on transsexuals and transvestites, labels from when being trans and gender diverse was psychiatrically considered a mental health disorder, were part of a room full of similar document cases on wider social and cultural issues over time. The entire archive is weeks away. being thrown out. I have to say that when I walked in and saw the four cases, my heart sank immediately. If this was going to be my last best hope, I wanted four boxes, like the kind you might use for moving house. The bigger the better. Not these. I set aside a whole day to look through boxes of archives. It was clear I was going to be done with these four cases by lunch. They were a bit bigger than A4 in length, and about the thickness of an old-fashioned fat photo album. Sturdier, too. Labels faded and chipped, typed by an actual typewriter. That catches my attention. Spines smudged, though the two newest cases are black marbled. And this is the next realisation I get. It's probable that nobody has opened these four boxes since they were completed, sometime in the early 90s. Nobody has really taken a look at these for about a quarter of a century. I wasn't hopeful, but suddenly, I was on the way to curious. I open the first one, and instantly, I can see. Yes, they're small, but they're professional. The archivists who put these together weren't just pasting together a diary of unreflected articles and images. This archive is purposeful. From the first few pages, they conveyed a sense of the important. They had an idea of the type of stories that would carry weight in the future. May 1976 till December 1979, January 1980 until June 1984, July 1984 until June 1990, and then, at July 1990, the archive stopped. All these dates are way outside of my original time frame. I'd gotten the idea that I would go looking for any homicides or violent deaths during the same 20-year time frame as the Trans Day of Remembrance, 1999, until 2019. But I jettisoned that idea pretty quickly. Now, I'm just happy to find anyone Any leads. Anywhere. It takes me less than 15 minutes. And like that, i found the first trans and genitiverse murder. And like that, across the span of 40 years, a lost name drifts back to us. Lisa Tanne Baker, 25, a woman in South Australia, in Adelaide. Okay, I'm going to tell you Lisa's story, or more importantly... I'm going to get someone else to tell Lisa's story. Lisa was a trans woman of colour and to do justice to her, I'm going to let a trans woman of colour tell it. My name
0: is Veronica and this is Lisa's story. In 1976, Lisa Tain Baker was a waitress in South Australia working at a place called Jeremiah's Restaurant on James Place in Adelaide turns out Lisa had been in Adelaide for about a year. She often traveled back to New Zealand where she had family. It also seems like she was popular and well-known amongst the gay nightclub scene. This particular October, Saturday, the opening of the spring racing season in Australia, Lisa had gone to the Victoria Park races presumably to watch or maybe listen to the Caulfield Cup being run in Melbourne. She was dressed for spring carnival, denim skirt, black top, high heels, brown check coat, green handbag and silver necklace. Lisa put money on a horse called How Now? Because apparently there was something about that name that tickled her fancy she won, ended up collecting $200, which in 1976 would have been more like $2,000. From here, it gets sketchier. Sometimes around midnight, Saturday, Lisa decided to walk home from the LaBelle nightclub on Hindley Street. Somehow she ended up in someone's car, drugged, quite possibly driven east, half an hour through the winding nighttime forest of Montague. Her body was found left on the driveway Sunday morning. Coat gone, necklace gone and her green handbag with $200 taken as well. The news article hints at something unusual about how she was killed. There were pathology tests being conducted by a coroner to get a better idea of how she ended up in Montague. But after that, nothing. Lisa Tain Baker's story felt silent.
2: I went looking for more on Lisa Tanne Baker, but so far, only dead ends. Then another interesting lead, an article from two years later, in 1978. This time, not a death, but a court case in Melbourne. A trans woman gets off a charge of prostitution by arguing that because she was assigned male at birth, she couldn't technically be a prostitute. As in 1970s Victoria, only women can be charged with soliciting. She wins. The charges are dropped. The awful thing, though, is this the woman's victory is short lived. In a matter of weeks, she would be beaten to death by police in perhaps the most high profile, longest running trans and gender diverse murder case in Australian history. Her name? Adele Bailey. Then, three murders across a span of 10 years, St Kilda in 1979, another in Darlinghurst, Sydney in 1985, and another, more ambiguous, in an isolated cave in Sydney in 1988. Three women, Jessica White, Wendy Brennan, and Samantha Ray. I'm going to talk about these three women a bit later, but I want to make it clear that for two of the women, Wendy Brennan in particular, a lot of work has already gone into giving her recognition and justice. I'll talk about that in a bit too, but while I knew about Wendy, I'd never heard of Jessica White or Lisa Tanay Baker, and Samantha Ray has been a footnote found with so little information as to be barely a mention. There was something else I found in the e-research center archive, something that I hadn't expected to find, but that sheds further understanding on the historical experience of transgender people and the ability to record meaningful statistics around trans and gender diverse lives. Two transgender women who have almost certainly been forgotten now, but whose respective ordeals speaks so much about trans people's experiences in Australia. The first woman simply went by the name of Jane. The second, Tessa, ten years later, in 1989, was at the centre of a pivotal moment in transgender rights in Australia. Tessa's story and her subsequent court case changed the way that transgender people were understood legally in Australia. Both stories are important, and I'll most likely tell them in episode three. For now, though, it's back to Sydney. <laughs> Sunday morning. Bondi. It's one of those glorious Sydney spring days. Ben Buckler, North Bondi Headland, is the only reasonable colour tone I can see. The sky has no colour. Sands of Bondi? Bright. The ocean? Mostly white. Roiling foam. Curling meringue waves. Black, blue glass sea beyond the aqua pools of Iceberg Swimming Club, which is just more white fringed by crumbled caramel sandstone. Behind me, Knott's Avenue, and looming above that, a reef of high Mediterranean white apartments. If anything here isn't trying to stuff more light in my eyeballs, I don't know where it's hiding. Everyone and their dog is out. I'm meeting people at the Black Sunday Monument. We're about to do a walking tour. The Sydney coastline, and in particular the walk I'm about to do, the Bondi to Bronte, has a secret history. A secret history of violence committed against gay men through the 80s and the 90s, and one that intersects with our stories. That intersection between trans murders and gay murders twines around one name in particular. Wendy Brennan. Wendy is one of the murders I found in the E. Scholarship Centre at Melbourne Uni, But a considerable amount of love has gone into her story, and that's why I'm here. Wendy is the last prominent trans murder in Australia, May 1985 to be precise, before Chrissy Pye in 2008, when the Transgender Murder Monitor kicks in. Wendy represents another one of those astounding gaps in known murders of trans and gender diverse people in Australia, 23 years to be precise. The walking tour I'm doing is with about 20 other people. I'm going to call them Pilgrims. And it's called the Bondi Badlands Historical Violence Walking Tour. The tour is run by Michael Atkinson, the program manager of ACON's Safety, Inclusion and Historical Justice program. Talking us through the tour is Greg Callahan, a true crime author and historian. It turns out Greg is carrying the weight of four particularly visceral stories, He's about to share over the next two hours. Greg literally walks us through some of the worst instances of LGBT violence in Sydney's history, a wave of killings and hatred that was at its worst through the mid 80s and early 90s. The reason for this epidemic is complex, but one reason that seems to surface again and again is the shift in demographics around inner Sydney, like Darlinghurst, Surrey Hills, and the Sydney beaches like Bondi, Tamarama, and Bronte. Between the 70s and mid-90s, these working-class suburbs gradually, inexorably, gentrified. Gay men became the focus of a smouldering anger as working-class people were pushed west. Working-class masculinity collided with a strengthening inner Sydney LGBT culture. It explains the violence to some degree, but it doesn't make sense of it. Here's Greg Callahan.
1: They were easy targets for working class boys. They um, perceived gay men as being uh, you know, wealthier or having more money and therefore more easy to rob. But look, there has always been under that um, a very, very strong anti-gay prejudice. So it doesn't take much. That's, the, you know, the robbery of the money is just, just the icing on the cake. Yeah, right. and, and transgender people, they um, are even more, if you like, uh, easy targets. Um, and they always have been. And as I say, you know, any, any means by which uh, a young bloke growing up in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s could prove himself as a man was to... Um, bash somebody of, you know, bash of sexual minority. Yeah, okay. There was at least one very bad bashing of a transgender person on the headland of Bondi, on the um, Bondi side of the Bondi Tamarama headland in Marks Park back in 1989, um, where the person was quite badly attacked and was left with quite serious
2: injuries. Um, Greg wasn't up to speed on the Wendy Brennan case, so instead I spoke with the walking tour organiser, Michael Atkinson.
3: Uh, My name is Michael and I work at ACON. Um, My role at ACON is program manager, safety, inclusion and historical justice. Our wider community today still is affected by that very violent period, which um, 1986 through to. 1994, yeah, right. in particular, um, was a very violent period. I think even just growing up in that period, being alive in that period and knowing that that was going on around you and and to be a queer person, to be a trans person, to be a gay person and hearing of your friends being beaten or if you lost someone. Yeah, it was quite a frightening period to, to be around. Yeah. Well, this kind of brings me to the point of um, uh, ACON's work that we did in conjunction with um, a community-led review of 88 alleged gay and transgender hate crimes. There were really only two uh, people who we had enough information about, um, Samantha Ray and Wendy Brennan.
2: Right, yes.
3: Um, who were on that list yes Wendy was a very prominent figure in our communities Um, Wendy worked in um, I think it was Pete's beat so I'm not from Sydney so you'll (laughs) have to excuse me in my memory as well (laughs) Um, but Wendy um, also worked um, and was well known for supporting and protecting young sex workers Yeah, we know that um, Wendy was loved, and um, we know that Wendy was, you know, in that sense, um, really um, had a heart of gold. Yeah, really had a heart for the community. Yeah, and it was such a huge loss for our communities. Yeah, Um, yeah. And the information surrounding Wendy's death, it really did suggest that um, it was the actions of very skilled. Um, experienced killers, and people today who I speak to about Wendy, understandably still feel her loss.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, which is the case. We know that these types of incidents yeah leave that kind of yeah. lasting, especially when there's no answers. It leaves people confused, and it leaves people worried. Yes. Like, really, are we being protected? Yeah. Really, might this happen again? And Samantha Ray, we... So Samantha was found um, kind of in a cave um, yes. by the ocean. Yeah. And there, I believe, there was a letter found... Yeah. ...in Samantha's bedroom. Okay. And there were... Um, what information is available? The circumstances surrounding Samantha's death um, didn't sound like a hate crime.
2: I want to talk about another story that Greg raised briefly at the end of our talk, about a young man named Clayton Beacon.
1: Um, there have been, you know, many deaths on this headland where we're sitting at the moment, looking out to the ocean and listening to it. One of them that haunts me is a young guy called Clayton Beacon, who, around the time of Ross Warren's murder and John Russell's and Kritchikorn Ratana Jarathaphorn, his body was washed up on the other side of the, the other headland at, at um, uh, Ben Buck. Ben Buckler's Headland. I'm sorry, I probably right. mispronounced that. Um, but he um, he was a bisexual man who'd been in the army, and um, you know, to this day, we don't know if that was a suicide or another murder off uh, the gap. We, we just it just so happened that he probably went over at the gap, which is a it's just a famous suicide spot. There are a lot of lot of. So, what do you do with the family there? Um, you know, in that case,
2: in the case of Clayton Beacon. It's hard to determine whether his death was by violence or whether he took his own life. The important thing to understand here is that these two types of violent deaths are part of the same problem. Here's the story of Wendy Brennan's unsolved murder, and the story of Jessica White, killed in 1979 in St Kilda. In 1985, Wendy Brennan was a performer on Oxford Street, and in particular, the Darlinghurst Bar known as Pete's Beat. It was the middle of the 80s. Disco was dead. New Wave was here. A performer like Wendy, with her fabulous mane of red hair, was at her best, She was well-known and adored. She sang, she danced, she told jokes. She had a great way with people. One report had said she'd made over 400 costumes in the three years preceding her death. She'd been a Newcastle girl, had run away from home at 16, had lived and worked in and around the cross since the mid-60s. She had no enemies, her friends said. They called her Big Red. The Sydney Morning Herald said of Wendy, she had held Christmas parties every year for all the people in the area who were down and out. It was the evening of the 29th of April, two months after Sydney Mardi Gras. Someone saw Wendy around 7pm on a Monday evening, sitting on the step of her Darlinghurst Road ground-floor bed seat. A neighbour living above her had woken up on Tuesday night to the sound of a loud shot and screaming, had seen nothing on the street and had gone back to bed. For a day, Wendy's door had hung open, the heater on, the television on. A friend had found her afterwards, under a leopard print throw. There was a lot of press, a lot of confusion. Everyone was baffled. Wendy hadn't been known to police, had done some sex work, but wasn't into drugs, was the nicest person you could meet. Her place had been professionally cleaned, the murderer had been unusually systematic. Wendy's death was baffling, but others wondered. Trans hate, sex act gone wrong, the same terms used in 1985 as in 2019. Her murder is still unsolved. But few trans deaths in Sydney seem to have left so much hurt and so many unanswered questions as Wendy's.
5: Hi, my name is Gabrielle Williams. I'm reading a story about Jessica White. This story mentions an Indigenous person who has died. In 1979 Jessica White was a slim brunette and Indigenous woman. Tall and beautiful at 5 foot 10. She lived in a flat on Gray Street, St Kilda. She dressed well and was described as fashionable. She was 28 and had moved to Melbourne from Alice Springs sometime in the last few years. Jessica was doing well for herself. She was smart and brave enough to work out how to change her name by deed poll. No small fate in the 1970s when any kind of gender non-conformity would have been met with questions and recriminations. A few years before Jessica had finally saved the $9,000, had travelled to Cairo in Egypt and had reassignment surgery. I like to think she did the sights of mid-70s Cairo with its pyramids and ancient ruins during the day and its casinos, bars and the nightlife that had it labelled as the world's sin city. Living on Grey Street in the late 70s in St Kilda would have been a dangerous place. Crumbling buildings, drug addiction and sex work often went hand in hand. Lots of crime, lots of violence, lots of police harassment, gutter crawlers, men in cars, cruising for sex workers, worked back and forward along Grey Street, especially on the weekend. It's hard to know for sure whether Jessica simply lived on Grey Street, where there's always been a strong bohemian culture and rent was cheap, or whether she worked there as well. It's not really important Sometime around midnight on Sunday, March 24, Jessica and a friend stepped out onto Gray Street and were bundled into a car by gutter crawlers. They drove Jessica and her friend four kilometres east to the suburb of Elstonwick. There, on a quiet side street, she fell from the car, escaped, or was thrown. She held on in hospital for six days before passing away. An inquest was named and three men were charged with her murder. Jessica's body was flown home to Alice Springs and there Jessica White's story falls silent.
2: Here we are at a rally held to protest Melody Bruno's death, the Filipino woman who was brutally killed in Wagga almost six weeks ago. For now, Melody's death is a world away from Wendy Brennan's, separated by 35 years. And so far, even though I've been able to add Lisa Tanne Baker and Jessica White to the list of missing transgender murders, I'm discouraged. 23 years between Wendy and Chrissy Pye and still no closer to including even one of our missing dead from those intervening decades. It's early November. This is the Philippines consulate, and it's three minutes' walk from Harmony Park. Again, that's where this year's Trans Day of Remembrance is being held. I have less than three weeks to find more missing trans and gender diverse dead and bring their names to Harmony Park to return them to the community. So far, I've only got two new names from the 1970s, and Melody too of course, but no one's forgetting her any time soon. I'm late, again. The protest is packed. There's probably between 150 and 200 people, but it's hard to be sure exactly. We're standing on a sidewalk, and every minute and a half another wave of traffic roars past and washes everything out. I've missed the first 20 minutes. The Filipino consulate shipped Melody's body back to her family in Tandag about two weeks ago. Played, in fact, a big part of the repatriation process. I'm here for two reasons. Firstly, I need to know how Melody's funeral went, not because I want to pry, not because it's anyone's business, let alone a podcast, but I've been deeply invested in Melody's story since she was killed. I'm off to Wagga next week for the court date. Her alleged murderer is appearing, and there's still so much around her killing that I don't understand. A lot about the process of sentencing that I need to get to the bottom of. I keep mentioning that Melody's alleged killer has been charged with manslaughter and released on bail. I'm hoping someone can give me a better understanding of how that happened. The reason I need to know about Melody's funeral? I want to know if she made it home okay. That she got back to her family and that she's safe. I know that seems like a strange way of putting it. She most certainly wasn't safe. I mean, about that thing that trans people wait to hear when word of our deceased gets around. Did she make it back to the ones who loved her And was she actually remembered for who she truly was? Or was she, as so often happens, buried with her dead name? That's my greatest fear. For Melody to have gone through what she went through, to finally arrive home in Tandag, and then for her to have her identity corrected or redacted for her family's sake. Believe me, it happens. It happens a lot. It happened to Wendy Brennan, I can't prove it, but most likely it happened to Lisa Tane Baker and Jessica White, and it may even have happened to Samantha Ray. There's a lot more to be said about the bureaucratic process of death and how it affects trans people. It's something that we'll return to. Here's the second thing I'm curious about I want to know why the Filipino and trans community is protesting at the consulate, why everyone appears to be so angry at the way their government has responded. To be clear, I have no idea about the politics at play here. I'm aware that the Filipino president, Duterte, is, to put it mildly, controversial and responsible for an anti-drug policy that seems to be the stuff of nightmares. But I think I'm missing something too, and I'd like to get to the bottom of it.
4: Could Hi. I come on in. Right?
2: Oh, Sorry. No, no. Bump yourself.
4: What a
2: gorgeous house. Yes, yeah, it's an awesome place. Yeah, it's lovely.
4: Hey, so this is the quietest spot, there's a backyard as well.
2: Oh lovely, okay, um, alright. So
4: my name's Peter Murphy, I'm a uh, person involved in the network of trade unions dealing with the Philippines. Melody's case came to us, uh, you know, with a shock. Um, she's not the only Filipino visitor to Australia who broadly falls into our ambit of a worker who um, has been killed you know, while here. I Was sort of anxious that the family would allow um, people in the network I'm in mean, to help in some way, and uh, it sort of turned out that way. So this is this, and you know it's hard to talk about these things properly. Um, but in Melody's case, uh, more more things are going to happen, I think, to get to the bottom of what took place. So at the rally, we had a sort of vigil come protest. Uh, one of the speakers. Angrily denounced the New South Wales police for naming the investigating team in Melody's case as Strike Force Lamson, and uh, I couldn't myself understand what the what was going on, but he was very agitated.
2: And that's when it's finally explained to me, and why everyone, Filipino and trans protesters, are so angry. It's to do with the name of the investigation into Melody's homicide. That name. Strike Force Lampson. Before I explain what Lampson means, I need to give you a warning. If you're offended by highly graphic descriptions of body parts or are listening with someone who might be, time to jump ahead. 30 seconds or so. Still there? Okay, you've been warned. The word Lampson, it turns out, is an obscure English slang term, and this really is your final warning. Lampson, apparently, refers to the faeces and skin lining that comes out of an anus when an object is withdrawn too quickly. That's right, the police investigation into Melody's death, Strikeforce Lampson, turns out to be another a particularly nasty way for sex to go wrong. Next week I'm heading to Wagga for the first court appearance of Melody's alleged killer and I'm going to find some answers. Counting the Dead is brought to you by the New South Wales Gender Centre and graciously funded by the City of Sydney. If any of this has been triggering, please call Lifeline on 13 14, the Gender Centre on 9519 7599 or QLife on 1800 184 527. Or, if you want to learn more about the Gender Centre or the Transgender Day of Remembrance, check out the Gender Centre's website on www.gendercenter.org.au You can also contact the research team, again that's me, if you have any stories about community members that you believe might be helpful or should be memorialised in this year's Transgender Day of Remembrance. The email address is countingtd at gendercentreorg.au That's counting, letter T, letter D, at gendercenter.org.au Executive Producer, Finn Borg. Production, Sound, Engineering and Publicity, Joan Westenberg. Writing, Research and Voice, Eloise Brooke. Legals, Nick Stewart of Dowson Turco Lawyers. Our City of Sydney liaison is Jen Trinker. We'd like to thank the Lord Mayor and Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney, as well as all the councillors who have been so incredible in supporting and taking a risk on us. Special thanks to Angelou Vithakis, and Tessa at Eagle Waves Radio. Special thanks to Helen Skerman and Jana Novkovic at Melbourne University's E-Scholarship Research Centre. Michael Atkinson of ACON, as well as author Greg Callahan, Benji Ra of The House of Slay, Violi Calvair, Boyan Mallory of McGrunty, Australia. Peter Murphy. Dr. Andy keller of New South Wales University. Special thanks to Alice Brennan of Background Briefing. Liz Seisman, Candy Jarks, Emily, Robert, Imogen, Alex and Ellis of the Gender Centre, Aquila Wolf Wild at No Trees Web Design and of course, the extraordinary Claire Woods for carrying everything else while I'm making this podcast. And lastly, the music used in Counting the Dead is by the extraordinary Ginger and the Ghost. Their music is available to download or stream online. And please follow Ginger and the Ghost on Instagram and or Facebook. I know I do. Take care.